It's the Bits and Pieces Podcast. Hello and welcome to Bits and Pieces Podcast for March 2023. I'm Fiona McGregor. It feels like I say every month, wow, you'll never believe what happened this month. But this month really does feel like the end of a political era in Scotland as First Minister Nicola Sturgeon stepped down. Uh, We'll come on to that. But first, let's dip our toe into the murky water at Westminster, where one of the topics was language used by the government and to describe the government. For a couple of days, we were all Gary Lineker, which I have to admit, I didn't see coming. We're starting with Deirdre Brock. Thank you, Mr Speaker. A couple of weeks ago, the leader praised the MP for Ashfield, claiming he spoke for many within Britain. He, of course, voiced support for capital punishment and instructed the poor and vulnerable on how they could subsist on a pittance if only they tried harder. Well, Gary Lineker clearly speaks for many, many more of us. Judging from the reactions when he voiced his revulsion at the language around the government's latest migration bill, I'm sure, too, the sight of that lectern emblazoned with its slogan shook him as much as it did me once I realised it wasn't a spoof. Are those three-word slogans, Mr Speaker, so beloved of some political operatives? Stop the boats, take back control, oven-ready deal, build the wall. Truly trumptious taglines, Mr Speaker, finessed by shady campaigning strategists to deliver grubby psychological jolts to the public's consciousness that will really drive their ugly, misleading messages home. And I have to say, too, Mr Speaker, that for a party with members perpetually outraged at supposed threats to their own free speech, their clamour to clamp down on Mr Lineker's opinions seemed deeply ironic. Uh Would the leader tell us if she agrees it's beyond time? We had a debate in this place about the use of populist rhetoric in politics and in public life before it's too late. It could specifically reference exactly those dark times in the past that provide us with warnings about where politics that increasingly calls on such language could be heading if we don't have the freedom to call out all such despicable attempts to other our fellow human beings. Mr Speaker, on International Women's Day, can I ask the Prime Minister to reconfirm that under his proposed new asylum laws, a woman who is sex trafficked to the UK on a small boat by a criminal gang will not be afforded protection under our modern slavery laws. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, it's precisely because we want to target our compassion and our resources on the world's most vulnerable people that we must get a grip of this system, make sure that we have control over our borders, make sure our, our system and resources are not overwhelmed so that we can help the people most in need. There is nothing fair, there is nothing compassionate about sustaining a system where, as we saw recently, people are dying on these crossings. That is not right, and our plans will stop that from happening. Mr Speaker, I'll take that as a yes from the Prime Minister, that women who are the victims of sex trafficking will not be protected under our modern slavery laws. What a complete and utter disgrace, Mr Speaker. But whilst it may shock, it shouldn't necessarily surprise, because this is the Tory government that in recent months has spoken of invasions. Just yesterday, this was a Tory government that said that 100 million people could be coming to these shows. And this is the Tory government that this morning said that number could, in fact, be billions. Complete and utter nonsense. So may I ask the Prime Minister, from whom are his government taking inspiration? Nigel Farage or Enoch Powell? When Gary Lineker called out the government for using the kind of language that was not untypical of the Nazi propaganda machine, the BBC was dragged into it, Gary was suspended, other commentators came out in support. Uh, This was John Nicholson being interviewed. Well, I think we've just heard just now, haven't we, that the Tories hate cancel culture unless it's Gary Lineker who's been cancelled. The BBC's got itself into a terrible position over this because the the bosses of the BBC, the Director General, Tim Davey, is a former Conservative Party candidate. And Richard Sharp, the chair of the BBC, is a massive Conservative Party donor. He gave £400,000 to the party. He facilitated a loan of £800,000 to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson then appointed him as the BBC chair. It's banana republic nonsense. 
the debate escalated into when is free speech not free speech? What can people say? And there were plenty of examples of people making comments. But a lot of people are looking at this and saying, how come Andrew Neil, uh, one of the most high-profile political journalists and interviewers uh, on the BBC for many, many years, how come he is allowed to be the chairman of a right-wing magazine, The Spectator? How come he is allowed to express political opinions on Twitter as much as he wants? How come the chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, the chairman, is somebody who donated £400,000 to the Conservative Party, someone who has helped arrange an £800,000 loan for the former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson? How come Robbie Gibb, or as we have to call him, Sir Robbie Gibb, who used to be the communications director for the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. How come he's on the BBC board at the moment? Why is Alan Sugar allowed to say what he wants on Twitter about political matters? Uh, what about Jeremy Clarkson? He's got a column in The Sun. He's got a column in The Sunday Times. He was on the BBC. He frequently expressed uh, political opinions, which many people think are extreme on social media. And why is the director general of the BBC, Tim Davey, the director general? He used to be the deputy chairman of the Hammersmith and Fulham Conservative Party. He's a man who's stood as a candidate in local elections for the Conservative Party. So why is all this allowed? Yet Gary Lineker is not allowed to make a fairly innocuous comment, which many, many people would agree with, about a policy that has been condemned by the United Nations and also by many human rights groups. And this is the same Gary Lineker who's been allowed on the BBC to criticize the human rights record of Qatar. Why is he not allowed to criticize the human rights record of the country he lives in? The original issue that had been discussed was the treatment of refugees and the, the way refugees were being described. Patrick Grady had a neat way of linking with the coronation. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It's been announced that on the 7th of May, a coronation choir will perform at Windsor Castle, comprised of some of the UK's keenest community choirs and amateur singers, such as refugee choirs, NHS choirs, LGBTQ plus singing groups and deaf signing choirs. If it turns out that any of the refugees taking part in that choir have arrived here on small boats or from a safe third country, should they be deported to Rwanda before or after they sing for the king? Now, speaking of the coronation, those of us of uh, a less royalist bent have got a choice of things to do on the 6th of May. And just to help with your forward planning, there is an All Under One Banner march in Glasgow that day. I believe there's going to be some kind of event on Carlton Hill in Edinburgh. And even if you don't want to travel to either of those, there is a declaration of Carlton Hill doing the rounds. I've signed it and so have quite a lot of other people. Alan Bissett, I own a five, Tommy Shepherd. The declaration says that we, the undersigned, declare our support for an independent Scottish Republic built on the inalienable principles of liberty, equality, diversity and solidarity. We hold that this objective requires the dissolution of the UK state, which connects and subjugates Scotland to its hierarchical and anti-democratic institutions and the creation of an elected Scottish government with full control of Scotland's natural resources and revenues. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, you'll find it at caltonhill.scot. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Still at Westminster, Sunak could not contain his glee at at the signing of the Windsor Agreement, the amendment to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which wasn't quite as much of an amendment as he pretended, as he was forced to admit to Joanna Cherry. The Prime Minister is to be commended for tackling one aspect of the mess left behind by his predecessor, but one. But of course, we should not forget that the Prime Minister himself and most of his colleagues voted for that mess. Madam Deputy Speaker, it's very important to be clear about the role of the European Court of Justice in this framework. Uh, The EU President Ursula von der Leyen has said this afternoon that the European Court of Justice will still have the final say on EU law and single market issues. That's correct, isn't it? 
Yes, as a, as a simple matter of fact, it is the European Court of Justice, which is the final arbiter on matters of EU law. That's what the president said. She's right. That is simply the, the legal fact of the case. Irony meters all over Scotland broke when he described the really special and completely unique deal that Northern Ireland now had, being part of the UK and the single market. I seem to remember time not so long ago when the whole of the UK had that deal. Wonder what happened to that. Mr Speaker, to the agreement today, you'd be forgiven for thinking on the basis of what the Prime Minister has said and in the Chamber and indeed earlier today that it had absolutely nothing to do with him. That all those problems were nothing to do with the Conservative Party or indeed him as a government minister. So what, what happened? a couple of years ago? Were they simply being opportunistic when they put this in place? Were they incompetent when they put this in place? Or were they simply duped into believing that something was up and ready when quite clearly it was not? I have no doubt that the public will draw their own conclusions in that regard. But broadly speaking, Mr Speaker, broadly speaking, I'm fully supportive of the agreement. And I'm fully supportive of the agreement for three simple reasons. Three simple and interwoven reasons. It seeks to safeguard peace in Northern Ireland, something which we all know is incredibly important. It seeks to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which I think everyone in the Chamber would agree is incredibly important. And of course, because it seeks to provide a pathway back to the democratic institutions in Northern Ireland being able to sit. Now, it's not for me to pontificate about democracy in Northern Ireland, but I sincerely hope that those parties involved will be able to come to an agreeable conclusion. And I know the Prime Minister shares my views in that regard. But, Mr Speaker, whilst all of that is good, we cannot and we should not forget the damage which has been done by leaving the European yeah. Union. Yeah. Brexit has been an unmitigated disaster. And they don't, they don't have to believe me, Mr Speaker, because what they should do is read the OBR, who outlined that there would be a 4% hit to GDP as a result of Brexit. Or perhaps they should reflect upon the back the fact that the trade deficit between the UK and EU is at its highest level on record. Perhaps they could listen to the private sector, those businesses who are unable to trade, those businesses who are unable to get the workforce that they require, those businesses who are unable to get the goods that they need. Or perhaps they could listen to the public sector, who of course are facing severe problems as well, many of them driven by workforce shortages. Indeed, many of the problems which encompass and face all of our NHSs across these aisles come from the fact that we have significant staff shortages in social care. Each and every one of those points, Mr Speaker, is a result of the disaster that has been leaving the European Union. And I just find it astonishing, Mr Speaker, that we have a situation where the leader of the Labour Party and the leader of the Conservative Party are hand and glove when it comes to their position on Brexit. But just finally, just finally, Mr Speaker, we heard, we heard integrity of the United Kingdom spoken about at length by the Prime Minister. Indeed, I think it was reflected upon by the leader of the opposition as well. But whilst there may be a scintilla of truth within that argument. What this deal does not do is create parity for the nations of these isles. Because what it allows, and I see the Northern Ireland Minister sitting there who was very positive about this in an interview earlier on, it means means that businesses in Northern Ireland have access to the single market, whereas businesses in Scotland do not. Now, I do not begrudge that to the people and businesses of Northern Ireland, but I do, I do regret that Scotland does not have those same opportunities. So on that point, can the Prime Minister just clarify 
why Scotland is at a significant disadvantage in that regard on his watch. And does, he do, does he not agree with me that the only way for Scotland to have access to the single market, the only way for Scotland to have access to the customs union, the only way for Scotland to rejoin the European Union is to rid itself of Westminster? Mr Deputy Speaker, on page 26, the Prime Minister in his statement and on various occasions talks that the Windsor framework goes further still, safeguarding sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland, of course, 56% of whom voted to remain within the single market and getting a Norway-style deal with Stormont getting a direct say on EU law. Does he therefore not think there is some irony for Scotland, which voted 62% to remain within the single market, that we get absolutely zero? Well, Mr. Deputy Speaker, this, I think the, the Honourable Gentleman doesn't recognise the unique and specific circumstances of Northern Ireland uh, and the fact that it shares a land border with the EU, the fact that we want to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, and the democratic deficit that existed with regard to the application of EU law. The Stormont break eliminates that democratic deficit and restores sovereignty to Northern Ireland. And no matter what other political differences he and I might have, I hope that he can recognise that it is an enormous step forward. And back in Holyrood, Trade Minister Ivor McKee was asked what he thought of the Windsor framework. Will he agree that it's an enormous step forward, I wonder? Uh, we welcome the Windsor framework, which offers an opportunity for the UK to reset its relationship with the European Union. However, the Prime Minister, by setting out his view that the framework puts Northern Ireland in an unbelievably special position, has uh, accepted that Scotland is now a major competitive disadvantage and has made crystal clear the immense damage the UK Government's hard Brexit deal is causing to Scotland. Despite voting overwhelmingly to remain, Scotland has been forced out of the EU out of the single market, of the customs union, and we have lost freedom of movement rights, which was so important to the Scottish economy. The Office for Budget Responsibility confirmed last week that as a result of Brexit, long-run UK productivity will fall by 4%, which is the equivalent to a loss in annual national income around 100 billion compared with continued EU membership. Given this hard Brexit supported not just by the current UK government but also by the Labour Party, it's clearer than ever that it's only by becoming an independent country that Scotland can regain the huge economic benefits of EU membership. Claire Adamson. Thank the Minister for his an answer and concur with my concerns over the Office of Budget Responsibility report. Can he give any comfort to Scottish businesses right now who will continue to suffer by a damaging hard Tory Brexit and what he can give them in terms of comfort as they look across to Northern Ireland and see the advantages that Northern Ireland will have over Scottish businesses with access to the free market? Minister. Yeah, of course we recognise, as I've said in my earlier answer, the damage that this can do to the prospects of Scottish business. And of course, the Scottish Government continue to work with businesses in Scotland to support them as best we can, given the damage that the UK Government is doing by uh, these steps. The people in Scotland are given a clear mandate for a referendum on Scotland's future. Scotland, of course, has huge economic potential, but the UK economy, particularly post-Brexit, is now lagging behind many EU and international comparators. So should the people of Scotland vote for independence when given a choice, Scotland will get the full range of powers and the ability to rejoin the EU to build a country that is wealthier, more successful and fairer than the UK. Yeah. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. an update on the deposit return scheme. Now, this is a central part of Scotland's net zero ambitions, creating a circular economy so that the people who produce waste take responsibility for recycling it. Despite huge public support for the scheme, this is looking like yet another of those political footballs where the opposition attempt to derail it at every turn. I was in Finland last week. I used the deposit return scheme in the local Lidl the machine itself is about the size of an ATM. You put your bottle in, it gives you a credit, you take it to the counter, you can use it against your shopping or they give you cash. Could not be simpler. There are successful schemes all over Europe, very similar to ours. And despite the wailing and gnashing of teeth of the Scottish Tories, 
It seems that the Scottish scheme is making good progress. Here is Lorna Slater to explain where we are. When we launch DRS on August 16th, the scheme will be among the most environmentally ambitious and accessible in Europe. It will increase recycling rates from 50% to 90%, reduce littering on our streets by a third, and reduce CO2 emissions by 4 million tonnes over 25 years. We are at an advanced stage of preparation for launch, which, with much of the infrastructure for the scheme already in place. Approximately £300 million pounds of private investment has been made, counting and sorting centres are being created, vehicle fleets have been ordered, and recruitment is underway. As of March 10th, 671 producers across the full range of drink producers from global brands to small craft breweries and distilleries, representing 95% of the total volume of drinks containers sold in Scotland each year, have completed registration for DRS with Circularity Scotland. I am delighted that so many producers have already stepped up to the challenge to take responsibility for the waste that they produce. The scheme will also create 500 jobs across the country, with 140 new jobs at a recycling plant in Motherwell and 70 jobs in Aberdeen already announced. This month, we have also seen the launch of registration for return point operators. This includes supermarkets, local shops, and other outlets where customers can return their empty containers and reclaim their deposit. We previously updated guidance and support to make it easier and quicker for retailers wishing to apply for an exemption to being a return point. This was in response to direct feedback from retailers, particularly smaller retailers. Exemptions can be sought on proximity, that's where an agreement has been made with other nearby return points, and also on environmental grounds, for example, if there's not enough space to store returned containers. I recently wrote to the convener of this committee to provide an update on the work undertaken to secure an exclusion from the Internal Market Act. As set out in that letter, UK government ministers acknowledged that the Scottish government has followed the agreed process at all times. I will take this opportunity to again confirm that we have been following the agreed and established process between UK government and devolved governments for excluding certain areas from the Internal Market Act since 2021. We expect a decision from the UK government as soon as possible, and I will continue to keep this committee updated. I will continue to work collaboratively with Circularity Scotland and businesses as they finalise their operational delivery plans and we move closer to the launch date in August. Now, the mention of the Internal Market Act exemption has caused quite a bit of consternation and some confusion, I think. Do you think there needs to be a clearer definition of what form a request for a new UK Internal Market Act exclusion should take? There is no request. That's not not part of the process. The process has, has, has been agreed in terms of that common framework and the process for it. This isn't a question of requesting and being accepted or rejected. This is a question of working through that framework to present evidence and then working with that evidence. So I think it's very unfortunate that, um, for example, Alistair Jack has presented it this way in the media. That's not accurate. That's not how this works. And, you know, for the record, Alistair Jack has not attended any of the IMG meetings where we have discussed this matter. He has not corresponded with me on this matter. He doesn't know how the framework works. And so his comments on it are unfortunately not very helpful. At that point, Lorna was cut off rather abruptly by the Tory chair of the committee. Alistair Jack's competence, or lack of it, came up again in the Constitutional Affairs Committee. Professor Aileen McHarg was talking about the impact on devolution of Brexit and the consequent legislation. And there was an interesting little snippet where she called out Alistair Jack for putting an interpretation on the Internal Market Bill that just isn't there. On deposit return, uh, Alistair Jack has been reported as saying the threshold for granting an exemption is a very high, it's a very high bar. Is it? The statute doesn't say so. The statute's entirely permissive. So you've got, you know, UK government, a UK government minister deciding that the threshold for grant of an exemption is a high one. A different minister might take a completely different view, um, in, you know, in a different context. Poor Alistair Jack attempting to engage in a battle of wits for which he is only ever half prepared, as Nicola Sturgeon also demonstrated during First Minister's questions. 
First of all, Presiding Officer, uh, when a big change is introduced, it's understandable there will be concerns about it. And I have deep respect for uh, the concerns that have been raised by business, and government will continue to work with uh, business to address those. But frankly, uh, the sheer opportunism of some opposition parties who have supported this scheme, rightly supported a deposit return scheme, previously criticised the government for taking too long to introduce it, to now indulge in knee-jerk opposition. The opportunism of that, presiding officer, frankly, is breathtaking. And so too, so too is the and I'll use uh, a, a parliamentary term that I believe is polite enough. So too is the blatant distortion uh, of some opposition politicians. Uh, and yes, I am talking about Alistair Jack in particular. And the hapless Alistair Jack was in the frame for more criticism, this time in the Scottish Affairs Committee, when Angus Robertson was asked to describe how the UK government supported Scotland's efforts abroad. On more than one occasion, this Scottish identity has frequently been diluted as part of a UK offering with Scotland's distinctive brand not always promoted strongly or systematically. If I may, Mr Wish, I'd like to give two examples, both illustrating a different dimension. The first is at the St Andrew's Day celebrations in Paris last November. St Andrew's Day and Burns Nights are key moments in the calendar to promote trade and investment opportunities in Scotland as well as our cultural and our educational strengths. In full awareness that the Scottish Government was organising with FCDO colleagues a joint St Andrew's Day event to promote premium food and drink production from Scotland in the residence of the British Ambassador in Paris to be hosted by a Scottish Government Minister, the Scottish Office insisted on hosting their own much smaller event at the residence on the same day. My officials were forced to move our joint event with the Embassy to accommodate the Secretary of State for Scotland. This risked reputational damage not only for our joint event but also collectively for the British Embassy and the many Scottish businesses our event was designed to support. The only body politicising this event was the Scotland Office, whose actions are distinctively political, demonstrating a small-minded determination to score constitutional points (laughs) rather than advocating for or supporting Scotland and thereby the UK internationally. Secondly, and for purely political reasons, Lord uh, Offord, the junior minister in the Scotland office, revealed private comments he claimed had been made by the Icelandic Prime Minister about Scotland. Such conduct undermines Scotland's interests and our international reputation. It's undiplomatic and it is impolite. This suggests to me that there is an emerging pattern of active undermining of Scottish interests overseas in the pursuit of a rather transparent and narrow-minded political agenda. So despite the genuine efforts of many FCDO officials around the globe, the evidence your committee has received from such bodies as the NFU Scotland, Scottish Chambers of Commerce and the Scotch Whiskey Association indicates that the UK Government currently does not do enough to promote Scottish interests and our distinct strengths. It also suggests that it would not take much to put this right, though of course I can think of a much better way in the long term of doing just that. The scandal of the cost of living crisis and the ridiculous energy prices being charged for energy-rich Scotland rumble on and even reached the House of Lords this month with Baroness Jenny Jones with some strong words for the government's general approach. My Lords, um, I asked on Twitter recently uh, the question, what do you call a corrupt far-right government that bans strikes, bans protests that are too noisy, suppresses the right to vote, gives police spies legal immunity, takes the power to make or reject laws away from Parliament and hands it to ministers? Now, I had quite a few replies on this, and most said fascism. Uh, which, of course, you know, was fair enough. But actually, there was one response that said, scared. And this is a government of the rich who are making suitcases full of money while avoiding paying their taxes. And I think they are scared. No one would, but a terrified government would keep bringing these terrible laws to your lordship's house. And the government is scared that the people on PAYE are suffering from inflation, high interest rates, and 13 years of Tory austerity are going to demand their money back. The money that was stolen with the PPE fast track and numerous other government scams had put money in the pockets of their friends while fleecing the taxpayer. Many of those on strike in the last few months have not had a proper pay rise for the last decade. And instead of their earning respect for years of being underpaid for the work they do and carrying on doing it, they're lectured on the need for further restraint by the richest Prime Minister in this country's history. 
clapping doesn't pay the bills. We heard that after COVID, and it's still true. So instead of meetings and compromise, the workers are being hit with draconian laws. Ministers are being given huge powers that could see them ban strikes across six public services, potentially involving millions of workers. And these aren't minimal powers, and these aren't targeted powers. They are the powers of a dictatorship that can be interpreted by ministers as widely as they choose. There's no recognition, as we heard, of the life and limb provisions that are already in place during strike action, which exempt certain categories of staff from strikes where there may otherwise be a direct danger to people. And the government don't recognise existing agreements because they once again wish to invent a problem that doesn't exist in order to justify a right-wing policy that suppresses opposition. Mr Speaker, on Monday, as households in Scotland were awakening to freezing temperatures. They were met with the news that the electricity grid had been upgraded in order to meet the power demands of the Prime Minister's new swimming pool. So may I ask him, was it whilst he was taking a leisurely dip that he decided to leave households drowning in their energy bills? Mr Speaker, thanks to the actions of this government, what we have provided is over £1,300 to help families with their energy bills over the last year. I won't want to preempt what the Chancellor is going to say later, but this is a government that is committed to continuing to help people with the cost of living, and that's what you'll hear later on. Stephen Flynn. You've got to wonder what planet he's on, Mr Speaker, because for households in Scotland, energy prices haven't been frozen at two and a half grand. Indeed, the average bill in Scotland has been closer to £3,500, a near tripling in just under two years. But worse than that, the Chancellor is about to get to his feet and announce that the £400 energy rebate is about to be scrapped for everyone, not just in Scotland, but right across these aisles. So is it not the case that the Tories aren't freezing energy bills, they're looking to freeze households? The UK government recently confirmed that Scotland generated and sent south 35 billion kilowatt hours of energy in 2021. That number will rise to 124 billion in less than eight years' time. For this multi-billion pound bounty, Scotland will see no revenue, no manufacturing or supply chain jobs. In our land of energy plenty, why should our people be cold and hungry and businesses failing as a result of his government's robbery? So what has the Prime Minister to say in defence of this naked exploitation of Scotland's people and its resources? You're listening to Bits and Pieces. As well as Nicola Sturgeon's shock resignation, John Swinney also announced that he would be stepping down from his position as Deputy First Minister at the same time. Now, John Swinney often came across to me as a very gentle, measured person, but occasionally he came out with some gems and here is one from this month, which I think is just vintage John Swinney. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The SNP like to point the finger at wasted expenditure from decades ago, but their own track record on this front isn't exactly glowing. What lies behind this question is the relative inefficiency and ineffectiveness of the Scottish Government's ability to deliver projects. Therefore, what is the Scottish Government doing to ensure that going forward, financial assessments are carried out to provide best value for the public purse? I have absolutely no idea what that question was about. because. I, came, I was up in Aberdeen this morning. I didn't go on the Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route. The Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route, I saw the junction. I didn't go on that route. I went to Robert Gordon University. Beautiful building. Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route delivered. I came down the road. I came over the Queen's Ferry Crossing. Where did that come from? Where on earth did the Queen's Ferry Crossing come from? Delivered on time, on budget by this government. And Mr Stewart should thank us for it. Question number There was also a rather nice little tribute paid to John Swinney by Liz Smith on the the Scottish Tories benches, showing that at least one of them has a little class. And this was during the debate on the wellbeing economy. In 2017, the Scottish Government held a significant conference on inclusive economic growth. From that international event, the idea of forming a coalition with other progressive governments to develop and advance a new economic approach emerged. 
This led to the establishment of the International Wellbeing Economy Governments Network, along with New Zealand and Iceland. This group meets regularly to share ideas and good practice, and it now includes Finland and Wales. Other countries are also engaging ever more closely with the network, but this, this network is now um, bearing significant fruit in the sharing of economic and intellectual thinking between Scotland and other jurisdictions that have a significant role to play. All of this is relevant to ensuring that we create an economy that meets the needs of all of our citizens in Scotland, one that uses our resources wisely and, and, and plans and bases on the investment for the future. And the motion from the Government today indicates the steps we need to take to ensure that we turn that into a reality in the forthcoming period. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I now call on Liz Smith to speak to and move Amendment 8305.2 up to eight minutes, please. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. And uh, before I come to uh, the issue in hand, I do want to say something uh, about John Swinney. Uh, he won't know this, but the first time that I knew very much about Mr Swinney when he was past part of a poster that was on my classroom wall way back in 1997. Uh, a little bit more hirsute perhaps than he is uh, today, but my S5 Modern Studies class had been uh, looking at the 1997 uh, general election and of course Mr Swinney was beaming because he had just won the North Tayside seat, I think something like uh, 4,000 votes. And uh, whilst I hope my lesson was interesting for my modern studies pupils, it perhaps was not quite so good for me, given that 1997 uh, saw Mr Swinney overturn a traditionally powerful Tory seat. And of course, 1997 was also the occasion where we lost all our seats in Scotland. However, <laughs> just... I don't think the SNP should Listen. clap just yet. Listen, yeah. <laughs> now, once, uh, elected, once elected myself, I got to know John Swinney uh, pretty well, most especially in the education brief and then laterally in the finance brief. And we've probably not agreed on terribly much uh, over the years. In fact, I think he might argue very little. But I hope he will agree, at least, that we have enjoyed some engaging conversations, uh, one of which I actually want to refer to in just a minute. No one could doubt uh, John Swinney's commitment to public service uh, or to uh, government, and I'm very grateful for the courteous approach that he's made to me, at least most of the time, uh, and, I, and I want to thank him for that. Um, but I will miss him um, in terms of our front bench uh, engagement, uh, and I hope that he will be true to his word in saying that he will be an enthusiastic participant from the back benches. Uh, but may I take this opportunity to wish him all the best in the future. Warm comments from Liz Smith there. I think she shows herself to be a decent person, unlike her party leader, Douglas Ross. We're not including anything that he's said in this episode because it's nasty, small-minded, rude, uncouth, mean-spirited. In other words, pretty much what we've come to expect from him. However... We have included Nicola Sturgeon's responses to his questions at her final FMQs, and it sounded as if she was enjoying herself. Setting officer, I think the only character that is being revealed in this chamber today is that of Douglas Ross. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Douglas Ross, as leader of the opposition, uh, no doubt uh, going to be a very long-standing leader of the opposition. Uh, well, unless his party has something to say about that. He, he chooses the topics uh, that he raises, and that is absolutely right and proper. But let it be noted uh, today, uh, for the people watching right now, that on this, my last appearance as First Minister at First Minister's Questions, Douglas Ross is not asking me about the National Health Service, or education, or the economy, uh, or climate justice. Uh, but this is the topic he has chosen, party membership figures. So that is fine. But if we are to have a proper interaction, a proper, I don't think Conservatives, given yesterday's events in the House of Commons, should be lecturing anyone about honesty and integrity. But coming back, presiding officer, 
If we are Thank to have you. a debate about party membership figures, then before we go any further, perhaps Douglas Ross would answer the question that I posed last time and that we're still waiting for an answer on. How many members does the Scottish Conservative Party have? Surely he knows. Tell us. Uh, but on the issue of priorities, uh, presiding officer, and these are not the issues I would have chosen to go on today, but Douglas Ross has chosen them. So if he wants to talk about priorities, let me point out that I am not the member of this parliament that missed a veterans event to referee a football match. Thank you. Secondly, on that point, presiding officer, I am not accountable to the House of Commons. I am accountable to this parliament. I know Douglas Ross difficulty deciding which parliament is more important to Scotland because he's got one foot in each but I know which parliament is most important to Scotland and it is this one our Scottish parliament and finally presiding officer I am proud I am proud of the record of the government I have led through some of the toughest times Scotland has faced in recent history but ultimately the only people uh, who will cast a verdict uh, on the record of my or future government are the people of Scotland. And in my time as First Minister, they have had eight opportunities to do that. And on each of these eight opportunities, they have voted for me, for the SNP and for my government. That's a record I'm very proud to stand on. Eight election victories in eight years as First Minister. That's the verdict that matters to me. But let's look at my record as First Minister. Progressive income tax, the Scottish child payment, lifting children out of poverty, the baby box, closing the attainment gap, record numbers of people like, from backgrounds like mine going to university, a National Investment Bank leading the way in climate change, abolishing prescription charges, minimum unit pricing, saving lives, record high health funding, the best performing accident emergency departments anywhere in the UK, the Domestic Abuse Act, free period products, expanded, doubled childcare, the promise for care experience you. young people, the highest level of school spend per pupil anywhere in the UK, the highest number of teachers per head, 8% more teachers now than when I became First Minister, free tuition for higher education, free bus travel for those under 22. I could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to because this is my last session of First Minister's Questions. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. And finally, after what seems or feels like it's been months of leadership campaigning, we have a new leader of the SNP. Having had the first female First Minister, we now have the first First Minister from a minority background, Hamza Youssef. I'm not a member of any political party, so I didn't have a vote in this. Uh, but I did watch all the hustings that were available. And I have to say all three candidates improved, I thought, as they went on. But I think the, the closeness of the vote in the end kind of reflects the fact that the, there was no standout candidate here, I don't think. I came to the conclusion that if you took bits of all three of them, it was a bit like the yellow brick road. You had Ash out there with the boldness and the courage. You had Kate out there with the brains and the coolness. And then you had Humza, who I think is a little tiggerish, who sort of bouncy and operates on an emotional level, I think. So between the three of them, they all had good qualities. And it'll be very interesting to see how, how things shake out now. I'm also interested to see if some of the promises that were made in the hustings are kept. And just as a reminder, here is a little summary of what Hamza has promised. Now, obviously, I've run these clips together, so it's going to sound a bit like a, a Hamza stream of consciousness. But it should get our bingo card off to a good start. 
if I am Scotland's next First Minister, every single government department, every single minister and every single cabinet secretary will be focused on not just poverty reduction, but where we can go further in terms of uh, poverty uh, eradication. So I think we are at our best when we are bold, when we are radical. That's why I say uh, I'm in favour of progressive taxation. Now, we've got to, of course, create jobs. We've got to increase the tax base. But progressive taxation, those limited powers that we have, we have to make sure we are using them to their absolute maximum. Uh, and look at, obviously, the figures in more detail, but uh, it's based on the STUC report, which was uh, brought forward before uh, the last uh, budget. So I think they, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, it's a 44% tax rate between those who earn 75 to 125,000. Mm-hmm. So between the, the higher rate and the, and, and the top rate. Uh, and it bring in around about the two million uh, pounds uh, mark uh, according to the STUC report Uh, and for me of course that additional uh, revenue, that additional income could be put into a number of things for me, uh, one of the areas I'm most attracted to is looking at how we compare social care, uh, adult social care workers more, Uh, we know that there is a big big challenge in adult social care I know that of course is Cabinet Secretary for Health and Social Care in particular and of course there cannot be an NHS recovery without a social care uh, recovery and the biggest issue every single social social care provider tells me is workforce, workforce, workforce. One of the first meetings actually I would like to have on day one is with all of those in the political opposition, the leaders in the political opposition, not just those that I have a close alignment with, i.e. the Greens, but actually all of those uh, leaders uh, to see where, where can we put our heads together? Where can we find common solutions in the national interest? So on the issue of GRR, I mean, we passed the bill. Obviously, the issue will be about the Section 35 uh, order. And my stance on that is unequivocal in relation to challenging that. Now, obviously, we take legal advice in the round. You have to do that. And, you know, no government responsibly, uh, if you get an equivocal, uh, unequivocal, sorry, answer from your, your Lord Advocate that says this cannot be won, uh, we do the responsible thing and, and, and wouldn't take that to court. But what I'm saying is that when it comes to issues of equality, yes, listening to public opinion, of course, is important, but demonstrating leadership. Why do you agree with something? Now, in, deter- in, the, in the case of the GRR bill, happy to get into the detail of it. Mm. For me, what we're looking at and why the Parliament has passed that bill uh, is because we are making life that little bit easier for probably the most stigmatised and marginalised group in the country. That's something I'm happy to support. But in terms of the GRR bill and the Section 35, let me say, actually, the substance of the bill is not necessarily the relevance here. The relevance is the principle of standing up against that Westminster veto. Now, we have spent a lot of time pointing out Westminster's failures. We're right to do so because there are many. But that clearly hasn't shifted the dial enough in terms of independence. Mm. What we have to do, because people don't get inspired by talks of process, is talk about the vision for independence. Why do we want independence? We want it to not reduce poverty. But eradicate. And we have to also kickstart, and I certainly do this as leader of the SNP, is kickstart that people-led civic movement. That was the beauty of 2014, was all of that, all of those groups that were grassroots, organic, making the case for independence. So we have to get back to inspiring people. If we do that, we'll get that consistent majority. And we need the powers of independence to make sure that we don't just reduce poverty, but we eradicate it. With the powers of independence, we can create that well-being economy that serves the people as opposed to the other way round. We need independence so that we can ensure that every child in Scotland has the best start in life, like my own girls. So I want to build the team. I want to harness all of the talent of the SNP to ensure that we deliver independence. I'm the only candidate that's committed to standing up to Westminster's power grab and to protecting our pro-independence majority in Parliament. As First Minister, I would serve and commit to advance the rights of all of the people in Scotland. So let me say that I'm not the self-styled continuity candidate. People have, of course, uh, said that uh, about me. I've said I'll be not just my own man. I'll do things my own way and differently, uh, to a large extent, to, to Nicola Sturgeon. But we absolutely need to refresh, reform and re-energise. That's going to happen regardless, actually, of who I think uh, of who becomes the next leader of the SNP. Uh, some policies that if I am First Minister that are, are different. So, for example, bring forward a £25 million fund where we can buy empty properties and put them into the social rented sector. That's just one example. My approach to leadership would be one of a big ten. We've got a huge amount of talent. Westminster, we've got Stephen Flynn, Mary Black, great MPs. In the Scottish Parliament, huge amounts of talent. Local government, this city alone, for example, we're we are, we are leading the administration. Uh, huge amounts of talent, local government. Harness all of that talent and build the team necessary to deliver independence. If I'm First Minister, I want to make sure that we are focused on those issues that are clearly affecting people day in and day out in their everyday 
daylight and drugs death, uh, we have simply failed too many people. And what I would intend to do is a number of things. First of all, continue to pressure the UK government to get uh, that, that licence for safe consumption rooms, where we've got heroin assistant treatment, like in Glasgow, can we extend that beyond the city? More carriage of naloxone, but let's continue to make sure that fighting the drugs death, fighting drugs death, is a national mission. And I would appoint a minister for drugs policy and make sure they appoint it. They were directly accountable. If I'm the first minister of Scotland, I want to look at the most radical and bold approaches because what we've been doing thus far clearly hasn't had the effect we'd want it to, uh, to have. So, the new leader, the far, one of the first things they have to do internally is get in amongst the weeds and understand why we lost those members. So, is it because, for example, people don't? we've made enough progress on independence. You inspire people with a vision to eradicate poverty, inspire people with a vision to bring forward a well-being economy. You inspire people by talking about giving every single child in Scotland the same start in life. Uh, the energy uh, market regulation, of course, is reserved to the UK government. And it's a travesty that the, 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 the wholesale gas, pr- gas prices have fallen as dramatically as they have, but yet energy bills are still sky high for people. And the Chancellor, of course, missed an opportunity to make that right in the spring statement recently. And Scotland, of course, an energy-rich country that's fuel poor because of those decisions. Uh, for me, I also believe that where we have the power for renewables, for example, in order to, uh, for example, Scotland, uh, instead of just leasing um, and those renewables, uh, offshore renewable projects, we should actually take a public equity stake so that if there's profits made off those renewables, they come back into communities and reinvested back into uh, into the communities and not just uh, profits that go to, to, to the shareholders. In terms of your point about oil and gas, I'm a firm believer in the just transition but we're not going to do what Thatcher did to our mining communities we're not going to destroy uh, communities we're going to take workers with us on this journey so so important that we frame any decision uh, around oil and gas in relation to energy security which is not just a domestic matter we've seen from the war uh, against Ukraine that actually uh, this, uh, energy security of course is an international and global matter I think. but in terms of the party I've said and said from day one that internal party HQ reform is needed uh, there's a great opportunity actually for the party although it's difficult as the last 72 hours have been that we have a new leader in place and a new chief executive. And I think that's going to be a great opportunity for the party to refresh. So when it comes to our net zero uh, ambitions, I do think we need to take people on the journey uh, with us. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, I believe we've got to inject pace uh, into that. That housing is often the issue that means uh, that, that, that uh, speeds up depopulation. What I've said is I'd like to buy back empty properties, put them into social housing, which will help with some of that depopulation issue. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to risk uh, our net zero ambitions, which has seen us as a, a global leader on climate change. And in the afternoon, you'll split the atom. (laughs) Only joking, it's great to have some lofty ambitions. And let's face it, it's in all of our interests that he succeeds. So that's it for this month. Another bits and pieces, another turbulent month. Let's see what April brings. We'll be back again this time next month with another episode of Bits and Pieces. And in the meantime, you can get a podcast from Scottish Independence Podcast every Friday. And if you haven't already done it, check out our IndiePod Extra YouTube channel where you'll find extended interviews, some of the videos that go with some of the clips that I've used in this show. Thanks for listening. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a